0: tense negotiations and the pressures of closing while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. In this episode, I dive into the
1: world of private equity with Peter Lehrman. He's the founder of Axial, a platform that connects entrepreneurs in the lower middle market with investors and capital advisors. His company is tackling the problem of capital inefficiency for small and medium-sized businesses and he's got a very interesting perspective on how to raise money or sell your company. With every interview guest, I never know what the end result will be. In this episode though, Peter came through with some great insights about building capital relationships, being ready, and how to play the game of building credible deal tension. As well, he opened up about a very painful mistake in building his company and how he recovered from that setback. After all, it's the mistakes that we learn from, there's tons of actionable advice in this episode for you. I'm sure you'll enjoy. On the line, I have Peter Lehrman of Axial or Axial.net. Uh, Peter, I want to thank you for taking the time. It's uh, it's good to have you on.
2: Well, Corey, thanks for the uh, the opportunity. Delighted to to sit down with you.
1: What you've built with Axial is. Uh, It's an interesting position you're in and there's a lot of avenues we can go in relation to transactions, capital raising, bringing in equity partners or complete exits with what you've done. Do you want to start with a bit of an elevator pitch about Axial and then about yourself as well? Sure. So I'll start with
2: Axial first. Um, Axial is a software platform that, uh, CEOs and business owners that run small to mid-sized businesses can use for two purposes. The, their first purpose you can use it for is to research, browse, and select an M&A advisor to uh, help represent you in the context of a capital raising or an exit transaction. The other key offering for entrepreneurs and people that are running privately held businesses uh, is to use Axial to uncover a list of potential investment partners or acquirers of your business and, and help you make that process more navigable and more transparent uh, and and ideally drive to a more successful outcome with a lot less stress uh, along the way. Not uh, the elimination of stress because selling businesses is inherently stressful, but uh, trying to make that process just a much more uh, successful one, both for CEOs and for the advisors who they they hire and retain as part of
1: that process. What got you into that? I understand you've got a private equity background and you've obviously seen a problem in the market what brought you into this
2: yeah so quickly on my background um, I came right out of uh, undergraduate um, studies here in America and went to go and work with my brother um, and uh, he and uh, his partner had co-founded a business here in New York City and I was one of their first employees and we developed the business um, to serve professional investors and to provide a set of new sources of information for professional investors to identify expertise that they would need to make better investment decisions. So my first sort of job out of college was I got very, very up the curve very quickly in terms of how investors think about investing in businesses. That business for the first five to 10 years of that business's life, they overwhelmingly served investors who were investing in uh, in publicly traded companies, you know, companies traded on, on different exchanges around the world. So typically bigger businesses with hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of revenue. I went back to graduate school after about six years helping to build that company. And when I was in graduate school, I worked while I was in school for a private equity firm that was focused on buying small businesses and mid-sized businesses, businesses with Five, ten, thirty, forty, fifty million dollars of revenue. And uh, what was, I think, so, so, uh, revealing about spending time in the private equity side of investing was uh, how it contrasts with investing in public companies. When you're a public company, there's lots and lots of information on the business, uh, as a matter of law and, and regulatory requirements, all. Major American and other exchanges require a significant amount of information, transparency, and disclosure on businesses that are going to list on their exchanges. And when you go into any private market uh, alternative where the businesses are not publicly traded, you just, it's, you know, even though it's 2018, 2019, and at the time when I started Axial, it was 2009, you're just completely in the wild west when it comes to the information quality and the information standards that you can rely on as an investor. And so one of the most expensive and most challenging aspects of being a professional investor in, in privately held companies, you know, private equity investor, is access to information, high quality information on the companies. And it's not just Access to information on whether the businesses, you know, have accurate financial records and and you can rely on on the uh, the representations that they're making about the business and its financials. It's also access to information on which businesses might be interested in raising capital, which businesses might be interested in selling. Um, unlike public companies where you know they trade every day and you can buy and sell the stock as you please, that's not the way that the private Equity or the private debt markets work. Uh, those markets are really driven by the entrepreneurs and whether or not they're thinking about raising capital or whether they're thinking about selling their business. So you have these very brief windows and moments in time when a, a privately held company might be able to actually have a financing event. And the, the absence of information on that makes it very, very time intensive for private equity investors to know how to spend their time and know how to build a pipeline of investment opportunities. So a large, a large part of the original concept of, of developing Axial was about making it easier for professional investors and private companies to find an actionable pipeline of, of businesses that were credibly thinking about selling a piece of the business, selling the whole business, raising debt or equity capital, so that they're not really just on a Constant wild goose chase, trying to uh, you know figure out sort of what deals are are real and what deals are are actually available and out in the market at any given time. And so, solving that problem for investors is very important because it really helps them figure out where to spend their time and 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 which businesses actually have a chance of being investable uh, or acquirable. Uh, the last thing that an investor in a, in a private equity capacity wants to do is spend a huge amount of time getting to know a business owner or a huge amount of time getting familiar with the business where there's never you know any likelihood in the near term or over a one or two or three-year period that, that there's going to be an opportunity for them to invest in the business or acquire it. That's a, that's a really um, inefficient way for them to spend their time. So helping them solve that problem was one of the key sort of drivers of, of creating Axial. And then, as part of that process, I realized there were a whole bunch of other challenges that entrepreneurs on the other side of the table faced. Um, And so, over the last 10 years, Axial has moved from being largely about helping investors find deals and and spend their time well to to also being a platform that makes things uh, safer and much more transparent from from the
1: entrepreneur side of the table, which I didn't appreciate as much uh, day one as I do today. I imagine I mean, there's so many just from what you said. There's so many paths we could go down there. I I'm going to jump to one, and perhaps we'll we'll come back to more in our conversation here. But you know what? I, what I want to discuss perhaps is a bit of your building of of axial, because you made you know you shone some light on it. That. As an entrepreneur yourself, now you're starting to see a lot of the problems these other entrepreneurs would have. Right. Right. You've gone out there and accessed capital from Comcast Ventures, Edison, uh, First Round, uh, Redpoint, and others. With that, what, what have you learned from building this company here? And something specifically that I find interesting is you've created a two-sided marketplace there, which is, is not an easy task. Uh, what have you learned <laughs> from here? Yeah.
2: No. So I mean, those are obviously two different questions, right? Uh, you know, uh, building marketplaces is um, you know something you could dedicate an entire season of podcast to. I would imagine. And oh, yeah. um, I'm happy to, to to give the you know the the highs and the lows and some of the techniques. Also happy to to get into um, you know the the capital raising that we've done here at Axial in in order to uh, in order to build this business. Maybe I'll start. Yeah. Let's do um, both. You know. Yeah, sure. So on the, on the capital raising side, I think that there's two or three things that, that entrepreneurs, there's a lot of things to learn and unfortunately, some of it you can only learn the hard way by doing it. But I would say that um, one of the most effective ways that I think conceptually for entrepreneurs to sort of sit with and think through the process of raising capital for their business selling their business making big acquisitions to transform their business a lot of it comes down to this concept that I tend to preach when I'm speaking entrepreneurs or, or or in a forum like this a lot of it comes down to this concept of readiness and and really understanding what does readiness mean for you as an entrepreneur getting ready to, to execute a significant financial transaction with your business um, I tend to break down readiness into probably two or three categories and the categories vary a little bit based upon whether you're raising growth capital or whether you're selling your company and moving on. If you're selling your company and moving on, there's a couple elements of readiness that really matter. Um, one is the business's readiness, right? Uh, and there's sort of there's a couple of, of ways to think about it. One is how articulatable can the business be? to an outside professional investor if they just came and sat down with you for a day or a week? Do you have your financial records in an accurate and auditable or already audited state? Do you have information on the business that any professional investor would reasonably want to get their hands on? Uh, If you're not in a stage of readiness when it comes to just good information and verifiable, accurate information on your business, you immediately put the ability to sort of finance or sell your business at risk—it's just very hard for a professional investor to put their capital at risk when they don't feel confident that they have a good understanding for what your business has achieved from a financial perspective and a, a legal perspective and a books and record perspective. So that's one piece of readiness. The second piece of readiness, when it comes to these you know transaction events, is just your preparedness as an entrepreneur um, in a in a couple of ways. One is your preparedness to just provide a narrative to to the market of investors, right? What What is going to be the story? Why are you selling the business? Why are you raising capital? You can't not have thought through those things and you can't be unprepared. You should think of capital raising or transaction moments like this as if you were preparing a major speech for a really important audience. It, you cannot wing this and then be disappointed when uh, you know when the outcomes aren't tilting in your favor. so preparedness around narrative, your own preparedness about being ready to tell the story um, and and giving yourself the time and, and investing the time in advance to do that is like another just critical element of sort of transaction readiness for entrepreneurs that run private companies or or public companies. You just have to have command of the narrative. And then I think when you're, certainly if you're moving on from your business, I think as an entrepreneur, there's a sort of whole psychological and, and sort of mental health readiness that, you know, can creep up on you. Um, you know, on the other side of, of a sale transaction, you know, is a, a new you, a new chapter in your life, um, a new identity for you. And, um, you know, while, again, I don't think you can necessarily fully experience all of that until you've gone ahead and done it, I think it's important for entrepreneurs to to be aware of those things in advance. So. I tend to break it down into what's the business's readiness, uh, generally speaking, for, for capital. What is its transaction readiness? In other words, how well prepared are you to actually tell the story and reveal the information? And then what's your own personal readiness, both in terms of what you're going to do next um, as well as your own preparedness to to lead the process? Because, unfortunately, whether you like it or not, if you're the founder or the CEO or the owner of a business you can't outsource the, the raising of capital or the, the selling of your business to somebody else. It really is your job and it, it, it will ultimately fall to you. Uh, so You can't just hire someone to sort of get it done for you. So you gotta be sort of nailed down on, on all three of those um, readiness concepts, I think, in order to, to maximize your chances of, of good outcomes. And I think when I raised capital for Axial at times I was very ready for these things and I think I got better and better through, through the different financings uh, that I did in terms of um, having my ducks in a row, having the business's financials audited, having a set of uh, relationships with investors that preceded the deal. I think you know, all of these things are um, things that you, you learn a little bit along the way and, and hopefully every time that you go through a financial event with your business, you're executing it uh, a little bit better. On the on the marketplace side of things, marketplaces are just very very hard businesses to build. Every business is hard to build to some level of scale. Marketplaces, I think, maybe take it one step further and and are even harder, just because you have these very very real cold star chicken and egg issues. And you know, every successful marketplace has some sort of you know story as to sort of how they got out of the blocks. Uh, You know, Airbnb was scraping, you know, uh, bed and breakfast listings off of Craigslist. Yep. And, yep. you know, uh, Facebook uh, obviously had chicken and egg issues because it's not, it's not an interesting platform for anybody to be on if there's nobody there. Facebook uh, and their approach to, to building um, sort of the, the two-sided dependencies of Facebook, they, they started out extremely small. They started out by just serving the the students at, at Harvard University, right? And then they spread from from university to university. So you know, usually the successful stories that you hear about, you know, there's there's some key technique that was used in the early days that was an important aspect of getting the the marketplace out of the blocks. For us on Axial, we did a couple of things I think that were really important. The first was, we made the decision very early on in the company's life that we were not going to disintermediate investment bankers as part of this marketplace. Uh, We believed that investment bankers had an opportunity to add value to the transaction and we thought that they could be a really critical partner to Axial as opposed to be somebody who we tried to remove from the transactions. And by making that decision very early on, we began to develop tools that helped investment bankers sell their clients' businesses or raise capital on, on behalf of their clients more successfully. And so as opposed to having them be a foe or an enemy out in the market, they became a very, very early adopter of the original set of software tools uh, on the supply side of our marketplace, so to speak. And That's if we interesting. had had to go di- Yeah, so if we had had to go directly to entrepreneurs one by one by one you know, that would have been a very different start to uh, to the construction of Axial's corporate finance-oriented marketplace. And I'm not sure that we would have been successful. It's possible, but I don't think that we would have. And then on, on the buy side of the marketplace, uh, the truth is that the buy side of the marketplace has a relatively bottomless demand for deal flow. And so the key thing to get, right on the, on the buy side of the market. It wasn't, it wasn't really about whether or not there was a, a validated need for, for what Axial had to offer there. I, I was confident that there was latent demand on the buy side uh, or the demand side of the marketplace. I think the key thing to get right there was how did you charge for it and, and how did you ensure a high quality of, of match between the, the buyer and the seller.
1: I think that's um, an interesting and so I think point another, to point out, is that yeah. from that buy side for the entrepreneurs? Perhaps sometimes they they don't see it that those who have capital are in the business of investing that capital, and they need quality deal flow. Without deal flow, the, yeah, that's right. Private equity firms, the VC firms, they they don't have any any product to work with. Yeah,
2: it's like you know, even though they're putting the capital to work, as opposed to. Uh, the other way around, you can look at uh, you know deal flow for a corporation that makes lots of acquisitions or a private equity firm that 's in the business of investing in companies. You can look if you 're an operator and you run a business, you can look at at deal flow as the same way that you as an operator think about. Your lead funnel, your lead funnel to your sales organization, your lead funnel from your marketing operation. You don't have a business without demand, without leads. Uh, when you when when you when you operate a company, and it's actually deal flow is basically the equivalent in you know in the the private equity business. You you are you, not in business as a private equity investor if you don't have an actionable uh, pipeline of investment opportunities. You you. you you know you don't really have a business until you have that. And so it's very clear that the demand is there. Um, the real question was, you know, can we match the right sellers with the right buyers? Uh, can we use software to make that process more successful from both people's perspective? And so I think the second big decision that we probably made and that we got right from very early days was we decided to buck the trend of online marketplaces that use a public viewable listing model. We didn't think that was the right model for the sale of businesses. So a lot of people who aren't familiar with Axial think it's an online bulletin board and as soon as you use Axial, everybody knows that your business is for sale. And that's, that's, exactly, that's exactly wrong. We made the choice very early on to make the entire marketplace confidential on a deal by deal basis. And so as a result of that decision, a lot of investment bankers, a lot of business owners who have a very high degree of sensitivity around revealing that their business is for sale, revealing that they're out raising capital, we were able to assuage a lot of those concerns because they learned once they demoed the software platform that they had complete control over who... They invited to uh, to discuss a transaction. It wasn't a bulletin board. It wasn't like anybody could go and if they had an internet connection, they could go and find out that your company was for sale. You as the business owner or you as the investment banker representing the business owner had total discretion on which buyers became aware uh, of your of your opportunity being in so, the market. So I think getting the confidentiality and and respecting the norms of the industry more appropriately was, I think, another really important decision that we made basically day one. And I think between those two things, I think that was, th- those were really,
1: really important to sort of bootstrapping
2: the marketplace in the early days.
1: So were there any crafty tactics you used? I mean, this is getting pretty early days, but any crafty tactics you used to get that critical mass? I mean, as you make reference Well, there.
2: interestingly, yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, there, there, there are today, and there were back in, in 2009 and 2010, there were a set of business for sale marketplaces on the internet that were sort of part of the, you know, the sort of web 1.0 generation. And basically what they did was they treated businesses as if they were real estate listings. And so they didn't give any confidentiality to, to the sellers. But what they did do was make it really easy for me and a couple of my early employees at Axial to very quickly figure out sort of which business brokers were out in the market actively selling businesses. So in the early days, we actually spent a lot of time on some of those 1.0 business for sale classified marketplaces developing relationships with business brokers and with investment bankers, and uh, and they said, "Well, this is the only thing that you know that exists." I you know I really wish that there was something that was you know better suited to 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 the needs of selling businesses, but you know this is what's out there, and so this is what I use. And so, one of the sort of tactics for us was just to to lean into the existing marketplace and to see how poorly they were serving the needs of investment bankers, and became not only a source of lead flow for us and a place where we went to go and and mine for interesting deals for our clients on the buy side but also that was one of the ways that we realized how important confidentiality from a ceo's and an investment banker's perspective was uh, was going to be so leaning on those sort of early 1.0 websites um, effectively you know the way airbnb i think leaned on on craigslist in the early days was definitely part of the the tactics i will say that uh, I, you know, I had maybe a little bit of an unfair advantage in starting the business as a function of just having the blessings of having gone to a couple of great schools here in America that that tend to breed a lot of investment professionals. I went to the University of Virginia for for my undergraduate degree, and a tremendous number of my colleagues, uh, or a, a bunch of my friends and peers from from UVA went on to have careers in investment banking and, and private equity, and then you know my five or six years working with my brother and his co-founder, we were uh, 100% focused on serving the investment community. So i built up a little bit of just, i built up a little you know, personal critical mass of professional investors. And I wasn't shy about <laughs> enlisting them uh, as the sort of kernel of demand on, on the buy side of the marketplace uh, in the early days.
1: Good, good we man also, for having the uh, the courage. I mean, it's what it takes, right? To reach out to those and say, Hey, I'm doing something different.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't at that point we weren't charging any, you know, we weren't charging for anything that we had to offer. So I think one of the early, one, one of the challenges with marketplaces obviously is pricing and where do you price and who you charge and how much do you charge and when, uh, I made things really easy back then in the first one to two years. And, uh, And I didn't charge either side anything. right? I just wanted to really focus on uh, a good good matching service for buyers and sellers of businesses. I wanted to develop some new habits with buyers and sellers and and get them to take the Axial platform somewhat seriously and derive some value from it. And I had uh, a really, really low cost structure for the business because I actually was running the business rent-free for the first year and a half. And so I was able to, to, to create some critical mass by not putting really any pricing friction, uh, you know, into the, into the marketplace in the early days, too. So, you know, when you call your friends and ask for a favor, but you're not going to charge them, they usually say
1: yes. And, and, um, and that, that obviously helped. Well, good, man. I, it's, um, what a run. I mean, 10 years in it now. And so I know. having yeah. been having been in the in in some ways the matchmaking business of connecting investors with with uh, entrepreneurs what are the common mistakes you're seeing that CEOs make and management teams make when raising capital or going going to execute a deal I
2: think I mean you can I'll give you two or three ideas, and I think a lot of stuff falls into one of these, you know, one of these, uh, three buckets. I think, I, I said it earlier, I think CEO and management team readiness, that is a CEO level responsibility. And you can't just wake up one day and decide you want to sell your business and think that you've, you know, that, that you're doing it in the right way. Whether you like it or not, that's just, it, that, that's a very high risk way to, to, to execute a financing or, or, or an exit transaction. And so being prepared in advance and understanding what readiness means for your business, it's just a critical CEO responsibility. You have to take it seriously. You can't just constantly you know, procrastinate and put out the fires of today and, and never prepare for tomorrow. So a lot of mistakes get uncovered. A lot of that readiness gets uncovered ultimately in a financial transaction process. It really lays you bare. And if you, if you haven't done the work there, you know, you get exposed. You get exposed as part of the process. Professional investors are typically quite rigorous in terms of studying your business and looking at your historical uh, financials and trying to understand customer satisfaction. And, you know, they do a lot of work. Um, the good ones
1: One do the- a lot of work. Uh, You know, just in in you saying that, one of the things that uh, came to mind was one of the strategies we used to use was we'd have our our book of potential investors or leads that we'd go out to for the deals we were doing. And we used to approach it in the sense of the first ones we'd go to were the ones we knew were going to say no. You just knew, Mm -hmm. you know, and we'd test our pitch on them. We'd test that narrative. You know, of course, we were ready. Mm -hmm. We knew we needed to raise money, so we were ready. We'd go and put that narrative in front of them and then be able to adjust it from there. And then we would go to mm-hmm. the ones that we, we, we thought would most likely say yes. So we'd, so we'd be able to build a bit of momentum out of that and perfect the mm-hmm. pitch again. And then you'd go to the ones that you, you knew were, would be maybes or you thought would be maybes. Just that strategy there helped us refine the narrative we were putting forward and gave you a better probability of closing on, on later investors. Um, I mean, perhaps that's... Uh, situation specific to the deals we were doing. I wonder, is there any strategies like that you see CEOs executing that that can help with that? that well, fight?
2: I was going to, I mean, I was actually going to say, I mean, it's interesting you say that because one of the, the, the second thing that I was going to say, and again, maybe this all falls into the readiness bucket, but one of the things that's really important when you're, when you're doing any of these transactions is to just really ruthlessly work towards having multiple options at the end of the, at the end of the process. And one of the things that's very tempting for a CEO to do is to get a lot of traction with a potential investor, potential acquirer as part of a financial process, and begin to just go really deep with only that one firm. Um, This can happen if you uh, aren't prepared and you run a process where you only have like one sort of real investor or acquirer at the table. It can also happen when a CEO or a management team receives an unsolicited offer to acquire the business. Um, And you get into these situations where um, you really don't have good plan Bs. You're not driving a process that is going to maximize your chances of having some amount of choice at the end of the process. So I think the second thing that I was going to say that where you see, you know, you see teams make, make, make a mistake is, They just put too many eggs in one or two baskets. They think they've got a couple of pals in the investment universe and they're going to pick up the phone at the right time and, you know, and, and they'll be able to get something done. And it's just very high risk. You can, you, you can be lucky or good or a combination and get it done. But I cannot stress enough how important it is, besides making sure that the business's readiness and the narrative is intact. Once you've done that work, I just can't stress how important it is for a CEO to have assembled a a credible list of potential acquirers or potential investors in the business and have done the upfront work to gather that list, to refine that list, to pressure test that list a little bit, and then to approach that list within a pretty defined period of time. You don't want to do it in a serial way. You really want to do it as parallel as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you can kind of keep the process going um, all together. So I think that, you know, that, mistake number two is you know you just see these guys get back into corners where they only have one buyer, and the buyer offers them a really unattractive price or really bad terms, and they don't they don't have an ability to play offense because they haven't work, done the work to to bring multiple potential buyers to the table. Um, mm-hmm. So that that's a big mistake that I think CEOs make. And then I I was just going to say the third thing is. There's a certain amount of suppleness and a certain amount of flexibility that you probably just want to think about having as part of these processes um, you know you may have a number in your head that you think your business is worth, maybe you get it, maybe you beat it, maybe you don't, but if you've run a careful process and you've spoken with a large part of the market and you know you're getting offers that are ten percent or twenty percent below you know what you're hearing um you know some people just walk away and say, "Forget it," and go back to running the business. And sometimes that's the right decision. But I think sometimes what I see is entrepreneurs really, really stuck on a specific number or specific value. And then if something goes wrong or you know the deal gets cut at a slightly different price or terms, all of a sudden emotion and and uh, and and a little bit of drama get in the way of of making a good, clear headed decision. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's the right thing to do, um, is double down, go back, build a business, you know, and prove everybody wrong. But, but sometimes, uh, sometimes it's the wrong thing to do. Sometimes it's right to, to just accept, um, the perspectives that you're getting from credible investors and say, you know, this is the right time to take the capital. Um, I don't want to take the risk. Um, and, uh, and, you know, take a, a, a slight discount and just keep moving. So it's usually one of those three things that that's what I end up seeing sort of, it, it
1: falls into one of those three buckets. I, I appreciate that insight. And um, I am just going to take one point there when you make reference to credible investors and identifying that and actually taking their opinions to uh, uh, you know, into your calculations, I think is, is a worthy thing to do. I mean, understanding that they're, they're looking for a, or for a good valuation as well, but perhaps they can provide some insight uh when helping with your own decision. I think that's an interesting point. What I want to go back to is though is is you were stressing building as many potential relationships as possible going through that financing or, or or exit process or sale process. But this brings me to the question about building deal tension. How do you do mm-hmm. that best? And and how can you actually, you know, using a platform like Axial, how do you do it there? And then when you take it into uh, you know, offline effectively, how do you build deal tension and come across as, as make sure it comes across as authentic and not just, you know, a, a bit of smoke and mirrors?
2: Yeah, right. I mean, um, well, listen, the best kind of deal tension is, is, is real incredible deal tension. Once, once you're manufacturing deal tension that doesn't exist, you're, you're into some of the black arts. Um, and, and there's, uh, there's just more risk there. I mean, there's some incredible poker players, and there's some incredible investment bankers that do incredible work for their clients in in those settings. But the best way to build deal, you know, <laughs> deal tension is is to create, create it very authentically. Uh, you you want to try not to fall back on on uh, on playing chicken or or, or bluffing just because it it is more dangerous. I, I mean. One of the core products that we offer at Axial, not not to toot the the Axial horn too much, but one of the core products that we offer to to entrepreneurs is with 100% confidentiality and and complete secrecy, you can log on to the Axial platform. You can upload uh, the key details regarding your business without even revealing the name of the business, Um, and you can immediately begin to get a list uh, inside the platform of corporate buyers, private equity buyers, financial investors, who we have already confirmed and verified as being actively interested in either investing in or acquiring businesses uh, like yours. So when you, when you go into Axial, you can up, you know, upload financial information and in the industry and the geography and the kind of deal that you're looking to execute. And based upon all of that data, the search engine and the software that we've built looks at all of the different buyers that are on the Axial platform and it just it separates all the wheat from the chaff and says here are the here's the subset of of investment uh, organizations or acquirers that would be interested based upon the preliminary data that you shared. And that gives you a good sense um, just using Axial of who's out in the market that has a demand for a business like yours. That doesn't mean that everyone on that list you know, is going to fall in love with your business and want to be your, you know, your next partner. But it means that they're actively buying or investing in businesses like yours right now. There are other tools. There's, you know, I mean, you can do tons of, you know, Google internet search and stuff like that. But I think one of the ideas behind Axial is building this sort of rapid results search engine for entrepreneurs, uh, where the search engine isn't Google results. The search engine is capital partners, right? Um and so you can't really build the deal tension until you have a meaningful list of of firms that you're going to reach out to. Um, it always helps to have pre-existing relationships with these investors or acquires if you've gotten to know a handful of investors or businesses over the years or some of them have reached out to you and said, Listen, I love what you're bu- building, and you know if you're ever interested in." taking some money off the table or selling the company, please call me. Th- those are all great relationships just because the sooner you have those relationships in, in the life of, of running your business, the less of a sort of uh, shotgun marriage process you're going to be running uh, at the end of the day. But um, but plenty of investors and plenty of acquirers will will do a deal with you without having had years and years of you know, of prior exposure to you. So I think the key thing is, have that list. The list can be a mix of of investors and professionals that you've known for many years, and you should definitely be augmenting that list with, you know, tools like Axial. A good investment banker should definitely be contributing to this part of the process to the extent that you've hired one of them. In many cases, you know, they might use Axial to to augment the list. And then the second piece of deal tension has a lot to do with, How you run the process itself, right? You can't approach uh, investors or acquirers in a serial fashion and and drive deal tension. You need to create and time box the process. And investors understand this, and and you know, um, you know they may not love it, but uh, but they understand it. And so it really makes sense to sort of think about very specific milestones and very specific points in time by which you're going to run. A capital raising or a sale process. Let's say it's July first, and you said, "I want to be, you know, out in the market by, you know, right after the Fourth of July here, you know, in America. I'm going to reach out to the market. Okay, I'll start reaching out, and I'll reach out to, you know, ten firms, you know, twenty firms, you know, per week." Um, and you're going to begin immediately sort of triaging the process again, either you're doing this as an entrepreneur, or maybe you have an advisor who's helping you. But you need to be sort of working your way through a meaningful amount of the list within a few weeks because you really want to determine who's interested, who responds to your outreach, um, and who's going to pass. And everybody who's interested, you want to sort of corral into a relatively devi- defined you know, time boxed process. That doesn't mean that you've, you know, put it in their face that you're running an auction, that, that's obnoxious and that doesn't typically work well. But being clear with them that you're out in the market speaking with a variety of potential partners right now, you'd like to have you know indications, you know, by this day, here's the core information set on the business, you'd like to hear back from them within a couple of weeks. And being clear about those things and sort of setting deadlines. Those are, those are things that just are fundamental to a successful sale process or capital raising process. Again, there are other ways of doing it. You can have an unsolicited buyer come to you and say, Hey, I'll buy your business for 50 million in cash and I'll close in 30 days. And you don't have to run a process. You don't have to hire a banker. It's just you and me. Now, if you really trust that buyer, maybe that's, maybe that's, that's good. The issue that you're, you're just taking huge risk as the entrepreneur there, right? If it falls apart, You've given them all this information on your business. They know everything about your business. And then if they decide not to close the deal at the end of 30 days, you know, you have very limited recourse there. So driving tension into the process by having multiple sort of interested buyers of the business or investors in the business is critical. So, and at a certain Lisa, point, you'll you'll get your first offer. Once you get the first offer, you know, that's kind of when that you can really take the tension to the next level, you know. If you yeah. have your first offer, you can reach out to everybody else. Say, "Listen, I'm beginning to get a set of offers. I'd love to consider you as a partner, but if you're going to be a partner, I really need to hear from you in the next few days because, you know, otherwise I need to respond to this other opportunity that, you know, that's very credible." So, it's just a you know, it, it, it's not rocket science, but it does need to be coordinated. You do need to be organized, um, and, you, you know, you, you do need to have a little bit of coaching on sort of have some of these conversations.
1: Perhaps not rocket science, but there's definitely a playbook, you know, and there's, there's certainly a best playbook, and I think you've uh, highlighted some of the, the best ways to go about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, you definitely want multiple conversations occurring with credible, interested buyers at the same time. It's always in your interest as an entrepreneur. You never are able to achieve the optimal price and set of terms for your business with total certainty unless you at least have two credible buyers at the end of the process. Mm-hmm. You don't need ten. You don't need some frenzied, you know, uh, you know, just frothy auction where everyone's going crazy. But the difference between just one versus two is a really, really big deal. It's, for anybody who sold a house, it's the same thing there. You, know, you can really drive towards fair value for your business if you have two serious buyers. If you only have one, uh, you're in a much more precarious state. So, whatever you can do to solve for two or more serious buyers at the end of the process or two or more serious investors at the end of the process is, uh, is very much in your interest.
1: Okay. Now, can we talk? Can we talk valuations? I mean, that's uh, an interesting one and when moving through the, the deal process, should valuations be, be fluid to the investors you're speaking to? One buyer can have a very different uh, strategic value for you than, than the next. What, what do some scenarios look like there?
2: Yeah, I mean I think one of the reasons, you know, there, you go to a, you know, you go to any real estate website um and you know every listing on the real estate website's almost always going to have an asking price, right? You know the the seller of the house always has an asking price. It's really interesting how in the world of businesses it's unusual that there is like an explicit published asking price, right? There's guidance, you know, there's the number in the entrepreneur's head. But it's unusual that you see that put out, you know, sort of early in the transaction. And the reason for that is because uh, houses and businesses are very different. Businesses are are much less fungible. And your business can be much more valuable to buyer A uh, than it potentially would be to buyer B. And that's not usually the case with something as fungible as, as a house. But it very much can be the case uh, with businesses. So as a result, I, th- I don't think it... I think you want to be very careful about, you know, about being too upfront uh, about the valuation expectations that you have. Just because you you might be premature in terms of um, leaving money on the table by by sort of setting a, a ceiling. Uh, whatever you say is going to be assumed to be sort of the ceiling. And so I think as a result, you know, sort of the the valuation guidance process is a sensitive one. I think you're much better off waiting until you've gotten at least one offer on the business um, before providing guidance to, to to anybody else. So I think that's the nature of valuation in the context of like an actual process. As it pertains to valuations overall, it's just one of these very elusive concepts, right? Because every business you know there's just there's a huge variation in in businesses that are out there with different types of capital intensity and uh and different returns on invested capital and it's a very very important it's a very very important area of distinction between businesses and i think sometimes it it doesn't it doesn't quite land on the business owners that you know that their business might be worth five times sales or five times you know profits Whereas a different business with a fundamentally different product and uh, you know different requirements might be worth you know ten times profits. Uh, that's I think a very frustrating reality for a lot of entrepreneurs. But there's a lot of math uh, and and reality behind all of those things. So it's always tough to talk about valuations in a sort of broad-based context. I can say that right now and for the last few years, it's just been for any kind of for any kind of business owner, it's been an unbelievable seller's market. There's no question about that. I mean the valuations of public companies and private companies are I think as high as we've ever seen them in recorded history and that's you know that's largely a function of very, very low interest rates and it's a function of a huge amount of uh, capital that's that's you know only able to to pursue a finite number of uh, of businesses. Within the context of any given deal, it's very important for the entrepreneur to have a good sense of, okay, how are businesses like mine valued? Why are they valued that way? What are some other businesses that are somewhat similar to mine? And is there a way to reliably understand how those businesses might get valued? You just don't want to look at valuation and say, well, I've got a friend and he sold his business for, you know, five times sales or 10 times sales. And so, you know, I'll just do the same for my business. I think it sounds like a cliche but honestly you hear those stories all the time and they end up breaking these deals you know the entrepreneur is just stubbornly committed to a certain number that you know isn't necessarily grounded in um you know like in in a fair approach to valuing their business they've got a friend who who achieved something or a friend who told them a lie and said they achieved something and and now they're just completely dug in on a certain uh, a certain number for their business and anything other than that is you know is is not really going to receive the time of day that's really you know that that's a really really dangerous trap for for entrepreneurs um, it, It's fine to argue and fight for valuation that's a really really you shouldn't be self-conscious about that whatsoever but but it's not fine to um you know to just want some valuation because you want it and and, and not be able to Uh, To defend it, you know, based upon market realities, that's where entrepreneurs sort of
1: almost just running with an arbitrary number.
2: Yeah, they just sort of take themselves right off the right off the rails that way. So it's tricky, obviously tricky emotional piece of the of the process, you know. Um, And you know that's that's part of what makes it so hard and stressful, right? Entrepreneurs have spend ten years, twenty years, thirty years, maybe second generation business inherited it from their you know their family and you know, then all of a sudden some private equity investor comes along and puts a number on it. And it just, it's, 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 it's very understandable how emotionally laden it is, but it's an important time for entrepreneur to, to try and keep their head cool and, and try to understand sort of how these numbers get arrived at. And, and, uh, and in some cases, you know, financial investors will, they'll lowball you and they'll see if you, if you tolerate that. And that's one of the reasons why having a lot of tension in your, and your process is so important, right? if someone just sort of thinks they're the only buyer at the table and they offer you some some number that you, after you've done real honest work uh, on on the value of your business is just not the right number, then you want to be in a position to play offense there and say, "Thanks very much for the offer that just doesn't seem fair and you know, there are a number of other partners that i'm talking to right now that you know, that you know, that have arrived at a, a a, a much more attractive number for the business, and you know if if you'd like to be competitive, you know I'm happy to provide some some guidance to you there, but that's kind of the way you want to handle a conversation like that. If there's nobody else at the table, you know then 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 you're you're in that situation as the entrepreneur where you, you've got your back against the wall again, and
1: you always cool. want to be
2: you what always I want to have the
1: you, option to yeah, uh, I just saying what I, I what ahead. I'm hearing from you is that there's uh, a real underlying uh, point for having a good advisor on your side when going through uh through one of these events
2: yeah i mean experience really helps here and you know before you and i went live on the call you and i were talking a little bit about the asymmetry there right as as an entrepreneur it's just a fact that you're going to spend somewhere between you know 95 and 98 percent of your of your hours working on developing the business's products the business's people uh, working with your customers. You're going to spend a couple percent of your career raising capital or selling your business. And, and so that asymmetry is, is challenging because you have all this experience running your business, all this experience operating the business, and then you're going to have these critical defining financial moments where you have these big financial events, and you're not going to have a whole lot of at-bats because you don't finance your business and sell your business. Constantly day in and day out that's not what you do you work with customers you build products you you deal with people issues so you have this these critical moments in the life of a business where you're selling it you're financing it, but you're not getting the expertise on a day-to-day basis as a result of your day job to be really good uh, in those moments and that's you know that's the reason for Hiring an M&A advisor, right? Uh, you know that's part of the argument for for hiring an M&A advisor. That's part of the argument for you know hiring a realtor when you you sell your house, right? Is you've never done it before, you've got a day job, you know, you've got other things that you've got to take care of. Uh, you don't want to take your eye off the ball so that you can, um, you know, be home all the time when someone wants to come and tour your home. It's the same thing when you're selling your business. You know you've got a business to run, you've got employees, you've got products and customers. And if you as a CEO are just constantly distracted trying to sell your business without good advice and good help, you can have a real diminution in performance and that, that only makes it harder to sell the business. There's a whole bunch of reasons why you need to have some good help around you. You don't have to hire an investment banker, but you need good help around you in, in one form or another. A great CFO, good investment banker can be helpful. you got to have a good uh, M&A attorney who can work with you on the legal documents, and protect you there. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's another place where you do see entrepreneurs maybe be a little bit penny wise and, and pound foolish hmm. and understandably so, because you can get ripped off, you know, hiring these advisors too. So, you know, it's, it's understandable why they're penny wise here, but, um, if you can select, select for good advice and you can align them to, uh, to a sec- successful event, you know, it, it, can, it can be very helpful to you. You've got a, a full-time day job running the business. And if you try and run the business
1: and sell the business at the same time, it can be, it can be very, very hard. Potent- potentially very hard. disastrous. So uh, maybe I'll give you a second to think on this one, but uh, from your previous experience, both with, in the private equity world and now with Axial, do you have any anecdotal stories or, or deals that, that you could walk us through that perhaps went good or bad that would be beneficial for the audience and, you know, a defining moment that, that made it good or bad?
2: Yeah. I I mean, uh, you know, I think, um, look, I'll share something that's, you know, that is, uh, you know, it's from my own, you know, my own journey at, at Axial, um, that's, you know it was it was really hard we we um we were we were raising capital uh in 2014 and um we had a lot of momentum we had really really nice growth in the customer base using axial both buyers and sellers and and it was just a it was a period of really significant growth and momentum for the business um, and so we were really excited about the opportunity to go out and raise some more capital and continue to uh, invest in developing the platform. And you know the long and short of it was that uh, my CFO and I just made a couple of important mistakes in terms of how we uh, projected out the revenue recognition uh of the software revenue that we were generating at the time we just didn't catch the mistake prior to going out and having our first set of conversations with uh, some really really good investors. It was an honest mistake um, you know it, it 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 was obviously a preventable mistake, but it was an honest mistake that my cFO made i didn 't catch it and um we got into a great dialogue with an investment firm. They had a great background investing in businesses like ours. Um, I really liked the partners there and then when we went into diligence and started to peel back the onion on the financial model that we'd presented to them, you know we just it was it was a terrible feeling like we just got caught in a conversation with them where all of a sudden the the way that we had built the model and were were recognizing revenue was it was just a it was just a mistake, right? It was just a clean it was just a clean-cut mistake. There was no There was no explanation for it. There was no way to argue it. There was no reason to argue it We were we had just made a mistake and it was wrong and it was stacking revenue uh, inaccurately and We were really far along in uh, in a financing process with them. They loved the business. We had great chemistry with them, Um, and it just stopped the deal in its tracks. Um, You know, it just you know we ultimately you know sort of dusted ourselves off, took another six months. I I, um, took an unbelievably fine-tooth comb through absolutely all of our books and records, uh, rebuilt the model myself you know, had a ton of people just check it and triple check it and quadruple check it. We went back out into the market. Luckily, you know, we were able to, to, to dust ourselves off and and get back into the market. Luckily the business was healthy. It was just, we were projecting a revenue ramp rate that was, you know, just inaccurate. And, um, so we went back out to the market six months later and, and, uh, you know, and continued on our way and successfully completed another financing. But it was really, really, it was just an embarrassing moment. It was a disappointing moment. I was embarrassed by my work and and uh, and, and our work as a team. And, um, you know, and it just, uh, <laughs> I, I'm really scarred from it. I really never, you know, I mean, I've dusted my, you know, like I said, dusted ourselves off. And, and you know, here we are today. And, probably a better, um, more gray bearded, you know, operator of a business as a result of it. But I mean, it was just a, it was just a terrible feeling.
1: Um, Peter, and, I, uh, I, I feel you, man. And, and thanks for coming yeah. forward and being open about that. I mean, like these mistakes happen and these things happen and it's, yeah. uh, but so often they're never talked about.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the most important things that you know there's a lot of there's a lot of playbook and a lot of expertise around capital raising and financing and selling businesses and it really does matter but i have to say that everything is easier if your business has you know happy customers and and reasonable unit economics in other words your customers pay you more than it costs you to acquire and serve them. And, and when, when you have a business that doesn't do that and that doesn't achieve that, all of the playbooks and all of the financial wizardry and stuff like that is, it's still valuable, but it's really not as valuable. So I think part of the reason that we were able to recover, even though I made a big mistake there, was because the business was in fact growing there is a real need to better organize the way buyers and sellers of private companies find and transact with one another. And, and that was true whether or not I'd made a mistake in, in, in Microsoft Excel or not. And ultimately, we were able to recover from that. You can see with some of these businesses that are you know, the more visible ones, right, like Uber and, and some of these, you know, and Uber's competitors, they've been the most unsuccessful IPOs this year, right? And I think the reason for that is because the jury is still out on whether or not these businesses at any level of scale are ever going to be any different from like airlines, you know, which never make yep. money and are massively cyclical, cyclical and very capital intensive. And then you see, you know, a business like Zoom, you know, the Zoom video business, which we're recording this webinar on. And Zoom you know it's had an incredible ipo debut nobody knew about zoom it wasn't like uber it didn't have any of that notoriety but the business has very attractive customer economics you know people want to interact via video zoom's built a wonderful product and it costs them a lot less to serve their customer than their customers willing to pay them and so it's it's had a beautiful ipo so I think a lot can be said for that when it comes to private companies too. It, it, it is very important as an entrepreneur to try and approach the market of capital for your business when you feel like your business is in as healthy a condition as, as possible. You know, that your product is relatively mature. Your customers truly value what you have to offer. The more you've nailed that stuff down, um, it's just going to, it ultimately is going to come out in the wash. The investors will figure out how far along you are in terms of building something valuable for your customers, and all of this playbook stuff and and good ways to sell a business and not sell a business that we've been talking about. A lot of the all of that stuff is true, but if you don't have a relatively healthy business with successful, happy customers, you know, as the foundation, you're awfully hard to to. Um, you know, to sort of obscure that as part of these, you know, these, uh, these financial events.
1: Hmm. Wow. It, great insights there. And again, man, thank you for sharing, uh, something that's so personal to you. And I understand the, uh, the scar tissue. It can, it can linger for yeah, a while. Yeah, no,
2: it was, it was, uh, it was a great lesson for me. It was, it was a very painful lesson. It was an embarrassing lesson. And, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be alive
1: <laughs> yeah good man. good man so yeah what in in relation to CEOs and entrepreneurs out there what are you seeing as the trends in in private equity right now and, and you may made mention of one I mean we've got some incredible uh, incredible markets right now with huge valuations but what other things are happening out there that CEOs and entrepreneurs should be aware of well you know one of the things that I think is
2: is um, is a couple things, right? So first of all, one big change in private equity, I'd say over the last call it maybe 15 years is is private equity now by by force of size, if for no other reason, is completely capable of investing in all kinds of businesses. Whereas if you study the history of private equity, which really got started in, in one way or another, sort of in the 60s and 70s, and as a much smaller, more cottage industry almost always in, in, the, in the early days, even into the 80s and the 90s, private equity firms, they really avoided businesses that had low capital intensity and that didn't have you know, sort of formal asset-based balance sheets. You know? uh, and the reason was because private equity firms, you typically buy businesses partially with equity and partially with debt and you couldn't get loans for businesses that didn't have uh, hard assets—real estate, equipment, factories, inventory, etc.—today, that's just that world is just gone. Uh, private equity is investing across every industry. You know, there are huge, huge investors—private equity investors—investing in software companies, technology companies, technology services businesses. Um, they're They're investing in advertising agencies, I mean, businesses that have no, no physical, you know, physical assets, right? 100% people oriented businesses. So the idea that sort of private equity only, you know, is a relevant sort of buyer set for certain types of, of companies in certain industries was true. At a certain point in time, they tended to focus on you know, boring, stable manufacturing and industrial concerns. That's out the window. They're very active there today, but they're active everywhere. Um, they're buying infrastructure. They're buying software businesses. They buy manufacturing businesses. They buy retail and apparel and consumer product businesses. There are private equity firms that do it all. There are private equity firms that specialize by industry. So I think that's a really important thing just for entrepreneurs to have some awareness of as opposed to sort of saying, you know, private equity, there's no way it's for me. Um, The other way that I think private equity has evolved is, again, it used to be, you know, that they would buy businesses with a lot of debt. And today, you see a m- really big proliferation of sort of styles and approaches to investing in and buying businesses. There are plenty of private equity investors that will buy a business and not use any debt at all. Um, they don't underwrite the investment, you know, a- a- and make it dependent on on debt. There are plenty that do, and there are certain businesses that can tolerate debt. But there are a ton of private equity investments in technology companies where. There's no debt, they're not taking on any debt, and they're investing capital in the business to grow the top line, to grow the team, to you know mature the product lines so just hmm. I just encourage people who have sort of older interpretations or understandings of private equity to sort of to rethink that just because the market has really proliferated um, and diversified. Um, I think the other thing what, is that um and this is just within private equity um yeah, I'd say the other, I mean, there's a lot of trends there, but I think that that's one of them. I mean, I think the other trend is just because private equity has become very plentiful and there's a lot of capital in the market, private equity firms have, I think, gotten the memo that if they want to compete for really attractive deals, they have to show up with more than just, you know, stacks of cash because it's competitive. And, and as a result, you're seeing, you know, a lot of private equity firms, Specialized by industry, and in many cases, as part of their pitch, they'll say, "Well, you know, here are two or three CEOs who have run businesses like yours that you know are part of our private equity firm now, and they're going to be they're going to be your day to day partner. They're going to be on the board. They're going to be your coach. You don't just have to sit here and, and listen to." You know, financial, money, private equity guy all day long. Tell you how to run your business. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna be your partner. We're gonna introduce you to a couple of uh, of ex CEOs or you know, or you know, uh, CEOs are a little further along in their journey and uh, and they're gonna be a resource for you. So I think I think private equity has, has iterated on and evolved their value proposition to entrepreneurs in order to better compete against one another. And I think in some cases they're doing a really nice job of that. And uh, you know, sometimes those people that they're introducing you to are are just sort of supervision and they sort of pawn them off as, you know, these coaches for you. And but in reality it's really supervision. Most of the time it's actually both, right? It's it's a it's a form of accountability, but it's also there to sort of help you become a more successful, more uh, you know, more effective entrepreneur. Um and, and obviously those are the best kinds of, of private equity partners to to work with, are the ones where um, they're helping you become a better CEO, they're helping you build a more valuable business and, uh, and they're doing that by, um, you know, introducing you to people who can,
1: who can make you better at, uh, better at your job. So you those know are some you great know things that I, uh, I see happening. You know what I like there is, um, when I was digging into your website, find, uh, your, your lower middle market digest where you're publishing this information and, right, uh, yeah. And I mean those points, right? You're what you put there is you're finding private equity uh, firms putting in more specialization as as a value add, as I see, um, which is interesting. But then, and and really to start to break down that paradigm that that PE is is really exclusively for infrastructure asset heavy deals. You're seeing you're seeing these PE firms move into very very focused niches that. I think perhaps some entrepreneurs would say oh, a PE firm would never touch my company, but but you're starting, yeah, I mean it's you know. it's
2: amazing what we see when we see people. You know, we see a, uh, private equity firms, uh, you know, buying uh, and building big businesses by buying you know different sort of dental practices and different indes- you know, different different uh, and unique geographies that are experiencing a lot of residential growth. We see them. There's a private equity firm that's buying lots of. Um, auto body and collision repair centers and, and, and rolling them all up into sort of
1: one, you know, sort of corporate parent entity. Um, I wonder if you know, this the is about just autonomous is, cars not being as good as we hope they will be.
2: <laughs> I don't know that that might be um, that might be a, a little bit too fictional of a thesis or a, li- a little too um, a little too far out there. But uh, my, my point is really that you know i think at the end of the day what private equity is there to do is, is is try and put dollars to work and 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 get a return on those dollars and and i think as the industry has matured they've realized that there are ways for them to do that by investing in traditional businesses you know old older lines of you know more you know sort of manufacturing businesses industrial businesses they can do it in you know, more, uh, more highly engineered software, engineered product categories. There's a lot of different ways that you can, as a good uh, investor, that you can you know, try and turn one invested dollar into three or four you know, over a 10 to 15-year period. And I think that uh, the industry keeps on maturing in terms of uh, you know, how to do that and, and the different approaches to doing that. And I think net-net, that's a very great thing for entrepreneurs because It, it broadens the array of, of, of funding solutions and capital partners that they can, you know, that they can consider. It's, it's just not, it's not a world in which your local bank is your source of capital. That's just, that's just not true anymore. And, um, and that creates a very, very exciting, uh, set of times for entrepreneurs. It's a set of, you know, it's a, it's a time where you've got to, process more information. You've got to navigate a little bit more of a complex, you know, landscape of, of financial partners. It's, you know, it's very straightforward to just have it be your local bank or nothing. That's a very straightforward reality. And I think today's reality is a better reality, but it is one that's a little bit more complicated and more nuanced and, uh, and it does require access to good information. And obviously that, you know, it just sort of brings you back full circle to what we want to try and build with Axial, which is a, you know, a trusted platform that helps entrepreneurs Maximize their their options as they think through these you know these big decisions uh, in uh, in the journey uh, with building their
1: businesses. I appreciate that. I can see where you're going there in the in the position you have in the market. Looking at time, I want to be respectful of yours. Do you have any final thoughts for CEOs and their management teams when going through this? I mean, we've hit on some really great stuff. What I really like is that you've been on both sides of uh, you've played on both sides of the. Of, of the fence if you will. Um, any final thoughts to wrap up and share with the audience?
2: I think I would just say two things and you know it's like a golf swing, right? You know you can only remember a couple things at the end of the day. I think the two things that matter the most for entrepreneurs is is to really really remember that that that, that preparation really does matter and preparation is it's just something that you can't underestimate its, its value. There's preparation for the transaction, there's building your business to a place where your customers are largely healthy and your business is able to reflect that in its financial statements. Just the further you can get along in terms of being prepared for these conversations by having a healthy business with healthy customers and pretty happy and engaged employees, all of those things are, there's so much blood and sweat and tears that go into getting that right and keeping that right and keeping it going. But you really do get rewarded for having achieved that um, level of, uh, of, of entrepreneurial success. And so the preparation around the transaction is super important. And then just you know the, the preparation around the business, you really get rewarded for having built a good business. And, and so I think that's just um, where you want to try and really keep your eye on the ball. So that's point number one to remember is you will get rewarded for, for building something that 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 your customers admire and that your employees like to be part of, and then I think the second thing is, you know, is just to remember that um, these processes, these financing and transaction processes, are you know you're not alone in them. There's thousands of entrepreneurs all around the world, any given day of the week, going through the exact same set of ups and downs as you. I, I shared a, a really tough setback uh, that I personally went through, and you know, that was just a hellish spring for me. And But there's there's always there's always an entrepreneur in your town or on the other side of the world who's, you know, sort of going through the, I think, the exact same feelings that you're going through when you're dealing with the uncertainties of, of raising capital and selling your business. And I think even if you don't know who they are and you're not having an active uh, sort of pity party with them, you should at least know that they're out there and, and, and try and take some, some comfort in that, that, you know, that, You're not doing it all wrong. It's just part of the process, and uh, you know you just
1: want to try and navigate the best you can and 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 make your peace with it. Peter, thanks so much for that. It's it's really interesting. Every time I do a podcast, I do an interview, and I connect with uh, uh, leaders in the finance space. I never know what I'm going to get. I never know how the the (laughs) interview is going to go. And I have to say, this has been uh, this has been really enjoyable. And I know that uh, this is going to connect with our audience. So so thank you so much for your time.
2: Corey, I'm delighted to be on the show. Hope I didn't ramble too much, Um, but uh,
0: I love that you're doing this podcast. I I hope it spreads far and wide, and, and thanks again for the opportunity. Yeah, you're most welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.